So farmers, our farmers are doing a really good job. And so when we start using very sophisticated 4Rs, practices and so forth, inhibitors, um, it's not like we have a big play in yield to create, right, or, or make up for. Um, and so we often don't see a yield advantage, but we see the huge environmental benefit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Growing Point podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. So in this episode, we are speaking with Dr. Mario Tenuta. He is the Senior Industrial Research Chair in 4R Nutrient Management and a professor at the University of Manitoba. We discuss 4R Nutrient Management, nitrogen losses, the type of nitrogen losses. We talk about enhanced efficiency fertilizers such as urease and nitrification inhibitors. We talk about how different soil types and environment impact how these uh, tools react and we talk about what that means for farmers what kind of benefits they may or may not see what it means for economic versus environmental benefit um, and just really trying to get a, a grasp on you know when we should be using these things why we should be using enhanced efficiency fertilizers and and what it means for you on the farm from an economic standpoint so I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I know it was very informative from my end. Um, it's always great to talk with with uh, Dr. Tenuta. Um, so I hope you see value from it as well. So enjoy the podcast. All right, so I am here with Dr. Mario Tenuta. He is a Senior Industrial Research Chair in 4R Nutrient Management and a professor in soil ecology at the University of Manitoba. Thank you for chatting with me today, Mario. Um, before we get going, I'd love for you to kind of give a background to our audience of what brought you to this role, what got you to this place, and maybe what research you're working on right now is, is kind of a preface for us to have this conversation, Mario. Right, Jeremy. First of all, thanks a lot for um, uh, inviting me. Uh, to your show today. So that's, I welcome that very much. So how did I get here? Well, I love soils, I love plants, <laughs> uh, and um, I love nitrogen and nitrogen cycle. And it's just always been fascinating. So I've been in, interested in nitrogen cycle since my undergraduate days in the late 1980s. So um, it's it's been a long uh, path here, a wonderful one. And so um, what we're doing now is really extending our, our understanding of nitrogen processes, but I must admit in a much more practical sense. In other words, um, in a sense that is actually relevant to, to farmers. So we do a lot of field research and a lot of practice research. And we are trying to fill in gaps in understanding uh, in how to improve nitrogen use and use of fertilizers. And not just, we also work with manures and, and uh, green manures as well, but prim primarily we do work with fertilizers because it is such a dominant nitrogen source and input for farmers. And it's also 
um, massively expensive for farmers in terms of the annual variable input costs related with fertilizer and then the, the massive swings in the costs, it really um, hits hits home to, to growers, right? So, and then we also have uh, a need, a real need to reduce losses of nitrogen to the environment. So nitrogen is so important in producing crops. We're dependent on it to produce those crops. And I'm just concerned that in the long haul, we don't want to constrain our pr productivity and profitability. And we want to find ways that we can keep, keep improving that efficiency and exporting our grains because, hey, in Western Canada, that's, that's what we do, uh, right? And so um, the environmental issues are real. Um, let's tackle them and let's use science to uh, tackle them in a way that we're also not going to hurt yield. So that's where we're at. Okay. So one of the big things that we're dealing with is nitrogen losses. And the big environmental one for the prairies is nitrous oxide emissions. That's a, it's a greenhouse gas and um, uh, use of uh, nitrogen in soils for, for crop production is the major source of that gas. Uh, so that's that's one particular um, main thrust that we have. Now we're using the four R's, the right rate, source, timing, placement as a framework, amongst some other practices and cultural practices that farmers can do uh, to give us a research guidance structure to so that we can communicate um, to growers about. Uh, what are the decision-making processes to best reduce nitrogen losses, right? So, so that's what we're doing a lot on the four R's, okay? So, and when we're looking at the four R's, one of the things that we found that really reduces losses of, of nitrous oxide and also ammonia, ammonia gas uh, from, uh, let's say, urea fertilizer are inhibitors or what we refer to as in the general case, uh, enhanced efficiency fertilizers. So your polymer-coated fertilizers, your urease inhibitors, nitrification inhibitors, dual inhibitors, that class of uh, products, which um, there's, you know, dozens on the market uh, in terms of brands out there. And it can get a little um, confusion, confusing. Sometimes it's confusing for me. I have to keep records of the products and tables and pictures of, of just to keep it straight and I keep adding every every few months keep adding more more right so um and uh so I I'm I'm with the growers in terms of the confusion and we want to um uh, study the products and and how how to best use them and we're also interested in about the economics too and and, and their environmental benefit of course right and so, but there's other things that we work with in terms of placement of fertilizer, uh, broadcast, broadcast incorporated, shallow banding, uh, deep banding, uh, side banding, mid-row banding, uh, in-season placement, like split application. We've done that with canola. We may be doing that with spring wheat as well. And we do that with potato and corn. Uh, those are more traditionally uh, acceptable for split application, if you want to call it, because they're longer, longer growing season crops. But when you start 
going to canola and spring wheat, it becomes the uh, first thing people say is, oh, too short of a season to, to split and, and so forth. But we do find the split application really does reduce losses of the nitrous oxide uh, uh, emissions, right? And um, what else am I thinking? We're looking at practices that interact, cover crops, for example, with the four R's. We're also looking at rate as well. So one of my big interests is, hey, can we change the rate of application if we're using these products, these enhanced efficiency products, these inhibitors or, or controlled release products, polymer-coated urea, and realizing that if we reduce the losses, we don't need to compensate with application rate, right? So let's say I give you an example. You apply granular urea on the surface of soil um, or in, in, in the fall, and we know that the efficiency of fall application is not as great as, as spring application, especially as we get more humid or wetter areas of the prairies, right? Well, often producers will increase their, their rate of fertilizer, for example, in the fall. Maybe the anhydrous is a little cheaper, fertilizer is a bit cheaper, and so they say, oh, I can, I'll compensate for the losses, right? So what we're asking are questions like, hey, if, if we're using the enhanced efficiency products, am I reducing my losses and therefore I don't need to compensate with my rate, right? And that's a way to um, ensure um, maintaining profitability, or in some cases, improve profitability, right? By optimizing those, those nitrogen rates. So that's where we're at now, okay? And we're talking here, you know, 10, 10, 15, 20 pounds area here per, per acre and dealing with in terms of fine tuning, right? And you may say, oh, that's not that much, but it, it means a lot actually when we're talking about fertilizer bill, right? When, you, when you're, you're talking um, hundreds, thousands of acres, right? So, yeah, so, oh, sorry, that's a bit long-winded, Jeremy. <laughs> no, I mean, you've, you've hit on a number of things that I, I was hoping to, to, to get through in this podcast. You know the the plethora of products that are out there, and and how a can how a producer can look at it and make sure that it's actually what is necessary for the 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 timing and the source of nitrogen that the producer and that that farm is using. And and um, you didn't say it distinctly, but I also want to make sure we hit on this uh, the delineation between economic loss and environmental loss and how we can come maybe come to terms with that in this discussion and what that looks like for making some of these decisions because um from my understanding and we can get a little bit further into this is you know we're seeing use of these products bring value in reducing the environmental loss uh, but it's not always coming back to an, an economic standpoint so i just want to make sure we delineate and understand what those what those two different discussion points look like as we kind of move through this. Um, so again, my my goal here with this discussion was to maybe work through um, the different timings and the different sources that producers are most likely to use in Western Canada. And we know the most, most commonly used sources and application processes based on the fertilizer use survey. So maybe walk through some of those and, and get an idea of, okay, what losses are actually occurring during those time periods based on that application method. I mean, you know, we're looking at shallow banding versus deep banding versus broadcasting and hydrous versus urea. 
you know, what what product do I actually need to use? And then are all products created equal? And and how do I know how to look for a product that's going to fill that gap that I'm looking for? Um, but maybe before we get too far into that, Mario, I, you know, maybe we could take a step back and, and ask the question of what are the types of losses that producers are actually dealing with in Western Canada right now? Like what what what's causing an impact again, economically and environmentally that we need to consider when we're looking at these application methods and sources of nitrogen. Right. Well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to <laughs> keep this as, as tight as possible because I could, we could, we could spend a couple of days on, on this. Um, so losses, I'm going to talk about the prairies. And so we have losses that would be um, to the atmosphere. Of fertilizers and that they would be those losses are ammonia nitrogen gas uh, nitrous oxide and um nox gases or we call nox gases okay and the one that's on the radar at the moment the most is the n2o because it's a greenhouse gas right and you you know you know about emission target reductions of 30% uh, of N2O reductions from from fertilizer added to soil by 2020 of of 2000, sorry, 2030 of 2020 uh, levels. Now, that is an environmental target. In, In terms of agronomics, it's not a huge deal. We're losing anywhere from a little over half a pound to depending where we are, you have to be in the more humid areas and and under clay soils um, to what I say there, I said half a pound, we looking at, you know, two, two, three pounds of nitrogen lost as N2O in the most humid worst case scenarios in the prairies, okay? Um, that's not hugely agronomic. You're not going to see a yield or uh, difference from that. Okay, that, put, put it that way. So that's an environmental issue. However, the nitrous oxide loss is indicative of other losses, and okay? and one of them is uh, nitrogen gas, which is uh, N2, and that's denitrification. And we really do not have good estimates for the prairies in the field. We have laboratory laboratory estimates and stuff in the field, not, not super great in terms of losses, but the, I, the thought is least equal to uh, in terms of the amount of um, nitrogen gas loss as uh, nitrous oxide, and if not anywhere up to like 10 times more, okay? And as we get more wetter, more humid air regions, we get more clay, and especially when you have the saturated soil conditions uh, early summer when the soil is warm, then you have more denitrification. And so, like I say, we don't have really good estimates on this, but the denitrification losses we know from soil tests um, before and after uh, wet spells, um, or when you have, we put down fall um, anhydrous, uh, and then we have a wet fall, wet spring, you're delayed getting onto the field. By the time you get onto the field, you realize you don't have much nitrogen. 
Uh, well, you know, uh, denitrification is a big component of where that has gone on the clay soils. Okay, so it, it's a big deal the denitrification. And again, like I say, um, you're talking, you know, peas, uh, northeast uh, Saskatchewan, Yorkton area, the Red River Valley, maybe the Regina Clay Plains when it's, when it's really wet and so forth like that. Okay. Uh, irrigation is another story because we keep the soils wetter with irrigation. So, and, and there's a bit of irrigation, as you know, in Alberta. And so the irrigation, um, the denitrification losses um, could be considerable. Okay. So those, the denitrification is an agronomic issue. It's very much an agronomic issue. The other uh, means of loss is ammonia. And that happens um, with uh, urea-based fertilizers. And so your granular urea, and it's particularly when the granular urea is at the surface of the soil. So if we broadcast and leave it there, then you can have um, ammonia emissions. You're not guaranteed, guaranteed to have considerable ammonia emissions all the time. What we need are um, wet conditions at the soil surface to solubilize that granule and have the soil enzymes contact the urea to break it down, transform it. We need some temperature, some heat, and it really helps if there's lots of wind. And as you know, we, we get lots of wind on the prairies too, and so forth. So um, the that can happen. Um, and again, that's we're embarking on this to try to measure actually for the prairies how much ammonia loss we, we can have with, with the surface applications. And, um, but, you know, the estimates based on the literature, if your models, anywhere from 0% to even as high as 5, 10, 15% of the nitrogen um, that's applied. So that's an agronomic loss. Okay. Now, if we start talking about split application, like we're, we're delaying our, our fertilizer a bit, you know, a little uh, after um, uh, emergence. Uh, and then it's warmer conditions. And sometimes we want to apply that split application fertilizer on the surface rather than incorporating it or, or injecting it or knifing it in or banding it in because there's root system there and this and that. Um, we leave it at the surface. So we could be in a situation of, of having more and more um, ammonia volatilization. There's also a trend to more and more custom nitrogen application. And that often is, involves just uh, floating um, the fertilizer on. And so it's left at the surface. Now, yes, the producer can come by and incorporate it, but if, if they're really pressured for labor and so forth and want to stick with a as close to a, a one-pass system as possible, then they may not be doing that. So, um, so this is always a, a surface application, even though, you know, from the survey, it's, it's, it's low, right? But it, it's always something, it's, it's an option for, for farmers to use. Sometimes they have to use it. You know, conditions could be very wet in the soil or they have winter wheat and they need to get nitrogen on it. There, there's, you know, there's always something, right? Um, and so the, the, yeah, so those are the major losses there. Now there's a, there's a last one and that's leaching. And this is going to be, uh, important as we get wetter climates on the prairies and we have coarser textured soils. 
Okay, so leaching will be important. So when we're talking about um, um, uh, on the prairies, well, wherever we have sand and um, and um, and humid conditions. So you might say, well, maybe we don't have the wetter part of the prairies may not don't really have um, coarse textured soils. We have, seem to have more um, clays actually, right? Um, however, but we do have uh, potato, a lot of potato land and um, irrigated land. And so uh, those lands can be quite prone to, to leaching losses, okay? And um, again, not great estimates on nitrogen losses here, but they're of agronomic importance, okay? And I know like we work with potatoes and uh, we can see from based on soil tests, disappearance of, of nitrogen from the fall to the spring quite easily in, in terms of losing tens of pounds okay, of nitrogen. So um, it's an agronomic important issue. Okay? Um, now it's, it's isolated mainly to the coarser textured soils though and under wetter conditions or with uh, irrigation. So, all right, does, it, does that help us out? No, that's good. I think, you, you know, we hit on those three main sources, the, the denitrification, volatilization, and, and leaching. Um, and it sounds like denitrification and volatilization are probably the two more broadly concerning, not that, that leaching isn't a concern, it's just there's less of an area that... So I guess taking those three loss potentials and knowing that we do have these enhanced efficiency fertilizer products that um, seem to have more and more emerging on the market every day. Um, it, it, are these targeting all three of these losses? Are there products that are specific to some and not others? Um, and even if there are two products that are targeting, say, volatilization. Are they are all of them made equally? Is there is there different processes that that they're using? Um, and you know how how can a producer maybe get um, a, kind of an idea of how to look at some of these enhanced efficiency fertilizers? Okay. Well, okay. Uh, let's see. Let's see if we can <laughs> not make things confusing here. Um, <laughs> So let's like let's break down the different losses. Let's let's start off with uh, the ammonia losses. It's the easiest one to deal with. Um, so we're going to have ammonia losses if we have um, fertilizer, and particularly as a urea, urea type fertilizer. So granular urea or UAN, that that urea component of UAN. And if we leave that at the surface, now that doesn't guarantee ammonia loss. If if we do not get rain to move that applied fertilizer into the soil, then we have the potential for ammonia losses. So the, the biggest risk for ammonia loss is, is when we don't get considerable rain. So let's say we, we're getting less than a 10th of an inch of rain, um, get little, we're getting teased <laughs> by mother nature, right? Yeah, but really not gonna do anything for us in the soil, right? That um, is the worst case scenario because it wets the surface and then um, uh, it's not moving into the soil and then uh, the enzymes in the soil can act on it and we can get ammonia lost. Worst, the best case scenario is that we get, we get a rainfall, okay? 
more than a quarter of an inch, you know, half an inch is probably decent to, to start getting the fertilizer into the soil. And that's perfect. If we can get that, then we have very little uh, ammonia volatilization, especially if that rain occurs um, uh, soon after the application and of the urea at the surface, okay? So in that situation, you don't have to put a, an inhibitor or urease inhibitor on. But you can never really predict when it's going to rain or not. Now, yes, some farmers will say, uh, look at the weather forecast and, 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 and um, you know, bet that uh, they're going to get the nitrogen moved into the soil. If you're on irrigation, then you can, you can time that, obviously, uh, by will. Um, but the urease inhibitors give you now some insurance in case it doesn't rain. Uh, and so those urease inhibitors, and it's key to know that it's a urease inhibitor, uh, works with urea products, only urea products. It will not work with anhydrous ammonia, will not work with ammonium sulfate, okay? And, um, and if the fertilizer's at the surface, if it's banded fertilizer, there'll be very, very little ammonia loss based on our research in Manitoba, okay? On sands and clays, our research, okay? And even if it's shallow banded, so what I mean by shallow, a lot of people get mad at me for using the word shallow banded. <laughs> what the hell is shallow banded? <laughs> uh, well, you know, quarter of an inch banded, okay? We, we, we actually strive to try to do that and we'd go half an inch if we can get the equipment to do it um, uh, compared to three to four inches, um, okay, deep depth. Uh, if, this, if the urea is in the soil, we're just not going to see ammonia volatilization based on our research, okay? So you don't need a urease inhibitor. So the, the thing is then, you know, you can say, well, if I'm going to use urease inhibitor, it means my urea needs to be on the surface. I'm not expecting rain uh, to move it in, and I'm leaving it at the surface, okay? Uh, and so that's the only time you need to use that. Okay, so that's the, 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 but as you can just see, I, we talked about reducing those losses just by subsurface placement, right? Yeah, so, so just to, to clarify then, if you're using urea and you're actually putting it down, banding it, getting it in the soil in any way, then the use of a urease inhibitor is not going to be agronomically and environmentally beneficial or is it just is it both that we're looking at there i i i i, I can't see a situation that i'd uh, advise somebody to put a urease inhibitor with uh banded subsurface banded fertilizer mid row or, or so, side so just if we're broadcasting on the surface and we're not expecting enough moisture to wash it down yep okay yep and now, then we go to the nitrification inhibitors, and the nitrification inhibitors are designed to not have the urea move to nitrate fast, okay? It delays that by about two weeks, maybe the best situation, three weeks, delays it to, to appear totally as nitrate, okay? And the idea there is then when we apply, let's say we're, we're in a one-pass operation, spring, we're, we're putting our fertilizer down as a band, or urea as a band. We have a nitrification inhibitor there. 
it will slow down the, the hydrolysis of the urea to ammonium and then nitrifying bacteria to convert it to nitrate. And it'll slow it down by two to three weeks. Okay. And if we get rains in that two to three weeks post planting, um, then we don't have the nitrate to be prone to be lost. By denitrification or even leaching. Okay. So that's what the nitrification inhibitors do uh, in terms of agronomic, is that it they keep the nitrogen in the ammonium form longer. That's why they're often referred to as, you hear the word stabilizer, right? And that's because it's stable, because uh, ammonium can stick to soils because it's a positively charged uh, cation. It sticks to the negative clays and organic matter, whereas nitrate, um, is repelled by those uh, and then stays in the water and and microbes get it and um, or it can be leached with with the percolating water right so um, the nitrification inhibitors now their ideal use situation is uh, with uh, subsurface placement so banding at the surface of soil uh, if I put the urea at the surface and we have a nitrification inhibitor, well, you know, in, intuitively uh, to me that just feels wrong because we have the urea going to uh, um, ammonium, ammonia, and then it has nowhere to go. It's not going to nitrate. It stays around as ammonia, ammonium, and can be volatilized more, right? So you don't want to be putting the nitrification inhibitor by itself if your urea is at the surface, okay? So that's where now you have what we refer to as dual inhibitors, dual inhibitor products, and where you have a urease and a nitrification inhibitor together. And fertilizers at the surface, it slows down the urea breakdown to ammonia, ammonia, slows down then the ammonia to uh, uh, ammonium transfer to nitrate, but that having the urease inhibitor there that just it helps alleviate this buildup of ammonia and then losses of it, okay? So, but you don't get the best bang for your buck in terms of um, reducing um, ammonia volatilization with a dual inhibitor. Our research shows you get much better uh, reduction in volatilization losses of ammonia with just a single urease inhibitor. If you use a dual inhibitor, you get a bit more volatilization losses. It's still lower than losses with naked urea at the surface, okay? So I um, hope I didn't confuse anybody there. Um, now, in terms of nitrous oxide emissions, a key thing is that nitrification inhibitor will reduce N2O emissions, okay? So wherever you put a nitrification inhibitor, it is, if, if it's at the surface or the urea is at the surface or banded, you're gonna reduce N2O emissions, okay? But if it's at the surface, you might, you have this extra um, unintended consequence of increasing the ammonia loss, okay? That's why you, you'd want to have a dual inhibitor um, the very least, or, or just go with a urease inhibitor at the surface. Um, um, okay, does that sound, does that 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds right. So what I'm hearing is um, nitrification inhibitor. If we're if we're going banded and we expect that moisture um, to to have a risk of loss of of denitrification, but if we are going on surface, uh, then sticking with the urease inhibitor seems to be showing the best results. Is that yeah? Um, in terms of agronomic, in terms of keeping the nitrogen in the ground, right? Now, from an N2O perspective, you know, there's probably still an advantage to having the, the nitrification inhibitor for the surface. So you'll see that, let's say the off-calf program, you know, the off-calf program that, um, um, uh, is it RDAR in, in Alberta and also uh, Canola Council are, um, are heading up um, and you'll see that the dual inhibitors are the only um, certified products. Okay, that's why we have, we have the most amount of information on dual products um, for reducing nitrous oxide emissions without exasperating the ammonia losses. Okay, so that's why you'll see in the off-cap program, dual inhibitors are there. Now I'm, I'm expecting that as, as we provide more data that we're going to start having single inhibitor products or urease and nitrification inhibitor products av available uh, under the off-calf program. Um, but the farmers are going to have to put them, put the urea in the right place. Okay. In terms of substance right. and so forth. And so, um, yeah. Um, now there's one other thing and just in, Oh, oh go ahead, Jeremy. I, 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 I talked too much. No, feel free. Like I'm just going to jump over and, and ask the question of anhydrous ammonia because we've we've hit on urea as yeah. uh, broadcast as banding in the fall and in the spring, um, but we really haven't hit on anhydrous ammonia. And you know we know based on survey that we see a lot of banding going down in the fall, uh, but also some going down um, prior to seeding. Yes, uh, is what are the big risks of losses that are happening there within hydrous ammonia and what are the uh, inhibitor products um, or enhanced efficiency fertilizer products that may help with that in those situations? Yeah. So you're right. Um, uh, some areas of the prairies um, and hydrous ammonia is a significant uh, nitrogen source. So this is my area in the Red River Valley. Uh, yeah, it's about a quarter. Uh, nitrogen can be um, anhydrous ammonia. Uh, you know, in the fall, we and in the springtime, we see lots of tanks <laughs> uh, strategically positioned out <laughs> uh, uh, by roads and fields. Um, and then you have a lot of uh, tank depots <laughs> out there. Uh, so uh, there's a big flurry of activity, right? And so it's, it's important. And, you know, the anhydrous, of course, is, is subsurface injected. Now, the losses of ammonia from anhydrous, um, a key thing for reducing losses of anhydrous ammonia as ammonia is to ensure that we have good coverage um, of soil above the injection um, slot. And so what we need is to close. We need good closure uh, above the, the injection, um, the knife, uh, and and pressing um, can help. There's a whole bunch of ways we can we can help with that. Um, probably the 
the under on clay soils, that's the most challenging to get good closure on clay soils. And then it's challenging on soils that are sh shrink swell, that crack, right? Oh, and when it dries, the crack, because what ends up happening if it, if it, if it, starts drying very fast and with, let's say, high temperatures and no rain after the uh, application of anhydrous, then you can get the, the soil cracking right at the knife because that is a, uh, a plane of uh, weakness, right? So we've already created that fracture point or plane. And so that um, can be an issue. So closure, 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 depth, depth, depth. Um, the, actually, the more moisture in the soil, the better um, for um, keeping the ammonia in the ground. So I think farmers uh, do a really good job. You know, I'm always, I'm always interested. You know, I'm always, my my head is looking on the, at the fields more than the road ahead of me in the in the fall <laughs> when in the anhydrous season because I'm just so curious. I'm looking for little whiffs. Little whiffs of ammonia coming off uh, behind the applicator, and um, they're really usually not that much. Usually, you know, it can be happening that when turning at headlands and things like that, where you kind of expect that, right? Um, and so the applications actually are really good in terms of the, the methodology that that I see out there. Okay, so the ammonia losses with anhydrous are not to be uh, greatly expected, okay? Um, because attention is paid to that depth, the moisture and, and coverage and closure. Now, so you don't need to use a urease inhibitor. Actually, you can't use a urease inhibitor because urease inhibitors work on urea. And anhydrous ammonia is not urea, it's ammonia, NH3, the gas itself, okay? Um, and that's the gas that, urea produces in soil, first thing it's produced. Um, but using the urease inhibitors is useless. Now, a nitrification inhibitor, on the other hand, has potential. And that would, in other words, keep the ammonia in the ammonia form. But what really happens in soil, though, as soon as that ammonia contacts the soil, it turns to ammonium and sticks to the soil, sticks to the clay and organic matter. And it stays there. And actually, it's not prone to leaching in that form. Now, with the nitri uh, nitrification inhibitor, it, the theory is that it keeps the ammonium in that form. So if, it, if you, let's say we apply in mid-October uh, anhydrous ammonia, and with a nitrification inhibitor, uh, the hope is that the nitrification inhibitor will keep the anhydrous ammonia in the ammonium form and if we have a wet fall, let's say we have a delayed onset of winter as well, um, that we prevent the leaching losses or denitrification losses because the nitrate won't appear, right? And then in the springtime, when we have the snow melt and all that water and everything, and we have uh, lots of denitrification occurs a lot in, the, in, the, in that thaw period. And also we can have leaching on the, on the coarser textured soils. The idea is that we, if we can keep the as little nitrate as possible um, from appearing from that anhydrous, the better off we are in preserving the nitrogen for the crop. Okay, so that's that's the 
That's the thing about the nitrification inhibitors. Now, we're studying this. So we're, we're, we have um, several studies now of, of um, nitrification inhibitor application with anhydrous in the fall. And actually this year, we actually did a study where we did a, a late spring, a late September application and a, um, a very late October application with and without a nitrification inhibitor to see if, um, if the timing um, uh, matters. Because ideally what uh, farmers would like to do is to spread out their window of anhydrous applications. Okay. So at one time, anhydrous application windows seem to be quite wide in the prairies. And then um, uh, now they seem to be, we've shrunken them, which I think is a good thing. We keep telling the growers, you know, wait till the soil is cool, uh, go out there, measure the temperature, and um, then uh, apply when it's cool. We usually say um, 10 degrees centigrade or, or less. Um, start thinking about the anhydrous ammonia going in. Um, if it's five, that's ideal. And um, I see it more and more. But a lot of growers say, well, you know, some years I get, um, I get caught. I get caught with an early snowfall or onset of winter and I can't get my product on. And then there's also the big crunch now. Often we see that if everybody's delaying their application to a two-week window, then that means a lot of product has to move all at once in the countryside. And the, the distributors just can't, you know, they, they can't give you their tanks. Uh, they can't give you the tank when you need it, right? And there's nothing worse than that, right? Um, sitting around waiting. And so uh, farmers want to know, well, can I go earlier, but use an nitrification inhibitor? It's, it's basically convenience, but I don't want to, I don't want to lose the, the fertilizer value. Uh, I don't want to bump up my rates of fertilizer, uh, nitrogen to anhydrous to compensate for the losses. So can I put a nitrification inhibitor? So, you know, for example, two products are NSERV and Centuro. These are the two two main products uh, on the market out there that um, producers have available. And we've been working with both of them. So just clarifying a couple things. Um, the nitrification inhibitor, when applied with anhydrous ammonia in the fall, will still provide some benefit in the spring. Will it last that long? Um, and then my second question was then, if I'm understanding correctly, assuming conditions are ideal, where the producer is applying when it's five degrees Celsius soil temperature, and then we go straight into winter, the potential for losses of denitrification and leaching are not there, and the value of a nitrification inhibitor is minimal. But it's really when we're trying to expand that window of application timing that the value of this product really shows its worth. Yeah, that's that's Russ, what's up front and center on farmers' minds about um, can I go earlier with my anhydrous if I protect it with the nitrification inhibitor, for sure. Now, from a scientist researcher standpoint, uh, my standpoint uh, uh, with the researcher hat on, um, we're also curious about the nitrification inhibitor preventing uh, nitrous oxide emissions at thaw. 
uh, but that's about 30% in the prairies of the nitrous oxide emissions occurs in March and April when the soil thaws. So we're curious about that fall application. Even if it was a late anhydrous application, does it reduce the N2O emissions um, in March and April as well? So that, that, that's in there as well. Now, obviously, from a producer standpoint, it's not an agronomic, but it's an environmental. But there are incentives out there to, uh, for farmers um, to uh, consider the environmental um, benefit of reducing nitrous oxide emissions. We talked about the off-cap program, for example, right? So, but yeah, you summed it up there very nicely. And um, our research, I would still call it at the preliminary stage, okay? Uh, we have what, one, two, three farm, two, three fields, commercial fields that we applied um, um, fall nitrification inhibitors with anhydrous ammonia. And we saw that both products, nitrification inhibitor products, um, reduced uh, nitrification. Um, so in the springtime at planting, there was more ammonium than nitrate with the nitrification inhibitors. Probably wasn't as much as I thought in terms of the reducing of the nitrification. Where we, um, I don't have the data processed from um, this year's growing season, which would have been the fall of what? 20, um, 22 uh, anhydrous application. Um, so I'm still calling it preliminary, okay? So within a year, we're going to have some really good um, solid. Uh, we'll be able to talk and I'll be able to tell you how well those nitrification inhibitors uh, performed. We know they perform wonderfully in the spring. They perform good in the spring, but uh, the fall um, is is what we're really tackling here. Yeah, as farms are getting bigger and and requiring some of that the logistics and work and application of fertilizer to to push to the fall, it's um, more and more pressure being put on that that time window. Um, and when that research comes, I look forward to having a conversation with you, Mario, about what that looks like. Um, you know, we've kind of talked through um, urea, the different application methods and the different types of losses that we see on those timings and application methods we went through anhydrous ammonia. Um, and you mentioned some of the uh, inhibitor products or enhanced efficiency fertilizer products. and. And I think with the plethora of products on the market, if, if let's say I'm a producer, I'm going to be broadcasting my urea and I want to make sure that I'm mitigating as much losses as possible. And I'm looking at products on the market to um, apply a urease inhibitor. Are all products made equal? How am I looking at these products to make a good decision and make sure I'm spending the money best yeah so um there are i guess many products available let's say for urease inhibitors and nitrification inhibitors so uh, but when it comes down to the active ingredients uh the you know like um uh, equivalent to like the herbicide in terms of the active ingredient or the the, the herbicide grouping uh we're very limited uh, on these inhibitors. So basically with urease inhibitors, we have uh, mainly one 
type of compound, and then it's been tweaked in, in a couple of ways. So really, there's like three products out there, but really they're part of the same family, right? And so um, everybody is kind of dealing with the same product. Uh, then they'll say, well, you know, their product uh, can have um, special activity because of the other things that they add to the solution, right? Um, and um, uh, then you can they can tweak also the concentration of the product. Okay. So, and obviously the more concentrated the product um, or the application rates in terms of the higher application rate of the active ingredient or the urease inhibitor, the more costly it is. So some will say, well, you can get, you can get by with less than our, than the competitor and uh, therefore you can save money. Okay, so you know those are the angles that are being being used from a marketing uh, uh, standpoint, right? So we're we're getting into this um, in terms of looking at um, the effect, relative efficacy of the different products, how well they compare to each other, and also what the impact of the concentration is. What I'm, but that's you know that that's kind of like a marketing thing, and, and the companies should be doing that and so forth like that. From a researcher standpoint, what I think I should be also really helping the farmers is to say, okay, under, uh, under a situation of my field, you know, I'm on a clay soil, I'm on a sand soil, what products should I use? Um, do I need to go with a higher concentration on the clay soil because there's concern that the clays are going to tie up the inhibitor, for example, that's what we're asking right now with, with students, okay? And so that's what I'm hoping, that's what we're gonna be tackling. So. Um, we do know that uh, with clay soils and high organic matter soils that these um, inhibitors are a, more of a challenge to work because you can have binding of uh, products with the soil. You can have microbes that degrade them very fast and so forth like that. Okay, So um, some products have higher concentration and maybe those ones give them more insurance that they're going to be effective in a range of soil types, right? But then, you know, if you're on um, um, a um, sand soil, maybe you don't need the high concentration and the products that have a lower concentration may be just fine, okay? So I don't have answers for you completely, Jeremy, here. This is where we're moving. We're doing this now in terms of, of, of research. I'm just letting you know some of the... the I wouldn't call them concerns, but some of the uh, considerations, right? And um, and you're right. So I get it's one of the big questions I get is like, say, should I buy product B? It's cheaper because it has a lower concentration of of urease inhibitor than product A. You know, we get that all the time, and um, I don't. I, I'm not going to say something right now, because if I say something, I'm going to have product B, a salesperson really on my case. <laughs> but it, it 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 sounds like there is a potential, and, and obviously the research still needs to be done, that with higher clay and higher organic matter soils, that a higher concentration may provide more protection. And it's, it's I mean, 
I was asking this question with the anticipation of we have this kind of threshold for expectation of, of uh, you know, we reducing losses um, and anything above that really isn't beneficial. But um, why am I not surprised that it's, uh, you know, it's more complex than that. There's there's more factors that are at play that um, the external environment are impacting what the actual concentration requirements in these situations are. Um, so certainly something I look forward to hearing more about as you dig further into it, Mario. But I'll, I'll um, give you an example. From my PhD, I was looking at, um, I was studying the addition of a, a rendering product, meat and bone meal, to soil. And we were using it to um, kill plant pathogens, verticillium, a potato, potato fungus. And I was trying to generate ammonia from this meat and bone meal to kill the, um, the fungus, right? It was like an alternative to fumigate, fumigation of soil. And I was using, I said, well, hey, let me use a, a nitrification inhibitor to um, roadblock the, the nitrogen cycle, nitrification process and, and build up ammonia in the soil. Okay, and yeah, and that worked. It was worked wonderfully. These are high rates, you know, it wasn't, a, wasn't an agronomic study, it was a pest control study, right? And, um, but I said, well, okay, what, what, what rate of um, uh, the nitrification inhibitor? And this is DCD, which is, which is probably the most um, commonly used nitrification inhibitor. Um, and I, but I was using 12 soils from across Canada. Um, and I, I had uh, soil from Alberta too, around the Calgary area. And uh, that soil actually had the highest organic matter of any of the soils that I, I was dealing with. And, and all the way to like sands, soils where they're growing potato and, um, and lo and behold, that Calgary soil, I called it Calgary soil. I was a young kid from Ontario and you know, never been to the prairies and stuff. <laughs> and uh, I know better now, but <laughs> um, uh, anyway, um, it needed like something like four to five times more DCD to inhibit um, nitrification than the, the sand soils, right? So I had to use that high, the highest, the concentration to be effective in the Calgary soil um, to block the nitrification in all my soils in my study. It was a lab study. So this gives you an example. We know that the products, uh, especially the nitrification inhibitors can be um, affected by soil properties and organic matter and clay are the, Two biggies. Uh, maybe pH is also another one that's involved, but I, I think we're okay. At the pHs that we have on the prairies, I think it's it's not not going to uh, reduce their effectiveness. So um, this is why I'm I'm very curious about this. Okay, and you know, and the farmers, this big thing to say is, uh, hey, this stuff costs a lot of money. Uh, these products cost money. Do I need it? Do I need to buy the the one with more concentration? Uh, so they they, they want to know these things, right? So we need we need to we need to come up with uh, sound sound information for them. It sounds like we're going to have to make this conversation an annual thing. Mario, <laughs> back <laughs> more information. Um, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation about this today. You know, before we finish up here, is there any other um, things you want to make sure? you get out before we finish this conversation that we may have missed that you think are, are vital points to this conversation? Well, 
you you mentioned about economics and we haven't really delved into this I, and it's like up front and center right um you know yeah we talked about environmental and you know four r's and nitrification inhibitors i'm you know there's there's such a brilliant way to reduce nitrous oxide emissions it's amazing um but there's a cost and how do these things pay for themselves well on the prairies generally 80 90 percent of producers are doing a very decent job in nitrogen management okay we're banning fertilizer we're putting fertilizer on if, if, if you're going in the fall it's late application in the fall often it's majority is um, one pass operations fertilizer and seeding at the same time um, and uh, the banding is fantastic. It prevents ammonia loss. It actually slows down nitrification. So banding itself is a is a means to stabilize nitrogen as well. And our rates, you know, we uh, we often do soil testing, or you have a really good feel for for the nitrogen and the nitrogen response to uh, of your crop in terms of yield. Um, and so the farmers, our farmers are doing a really good job. And so when we start using very sophisticated 4Rs, practices and so forth, inhibitors, um, it's not like we have a big play in yield to, to create, right, or, or make up for. Um, and so we often don't see a yield advantage, but we see the huge environmental benefit. Well, we talked about briefly about saying, hey, um, maybe I'm reducing losses, so maybe I can rethink my nitrogen rates. So we keep thinking about it on the prairies, we keep increasing our nitrogen rates as our yield potential goes up with better genetics and, 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 and pest management, weed management, and so forth, right? And but that's a big trajectory of increasing nitrogen. Uh, and if we want to reduce nitrous oxide emissions, there's, you know, that doesn't make any sense. We're going to, right? So, but we could probably start doing that. I don't know if you see my hand bend a little bit in terms of with using these better four R's and um, um, with the nitrogen rates, but still have yield um, going up with the four R's. So that's what I'm looking at, okay? And so I think farmers need to optimize their, or think, consider their nitrogen rates. And I'm not talking about 30% reduction of nitrogen rates. Don't freak out. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, no, 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 no. But I'm saying, saying, hey, maybe consider the cost of the practice. If I'm buying a nitrification inhibitor or enhanced efficiency fertilizer, and it costs me 10% more of my nitrogen bill, is it actually allowing me to reduce my nitrogen by 10%? Think about that. Try it, not on your whole fields. I don't want you coming back to me and suing me for, for you know, hundreds of thousand dollars lost of uh, canola production. But um, uh, think about that and, and test it out, okay? And think at some point we do need to not keep relying constantly on that increase and in, in, in rate all the time, okay? Um, so that's one thing. The other is the off-calf programs, which will be cost-sharing uh, with governments to um, uh, pay for the practices or let's say the case inhibitors. Uh, another 
is eventually, hopefully down the road, maybe we'll have carbon markets where you can get credits and, and get paid for for reducing the, the nitrous oxide uh, emissions, okay? Uh, and in some cases, you know, you may find that you do get a yield increase, um, uh, but you need to pay attention to it and you be able to need to measure and follow that yield, right? And you got to do some in-field comparisons, right? With and without inhibitors of the products and things like that. So you got to got to do things like that. But so anyway, I'm hoping that we can move in this direction on the prairies, okay? Where we're thinking about the, the economics and rather than just saying, hey, my yield's not increasing, therefore I'm not going to use this stuff. I think that's wrong because we have other options there. Okay. What I want to make sure is that we don't reduce our profit levels with these better nitrogen management. So, but we can tweak either the nitrogen rates or, or maybe how they're applied to less costly means or, or do some, take advantage of lower nitrogen costs, uh, you know, from the, from the, uh, your local uh, supplier and stuff like that. So, Anyway, the economics, that's a, that's a great um, discussion for another day. Yes, and a very complex one. Mario, I greatly appreciate the time. Thanks for all of the information today, and I look forward to chatting again in the future. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been great. And that's a wrap for another episode of The Growing Point, where we talk with experts in the field of agronomy and agriculture, bringing you the latest insights for you to take back to your farm. Before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. Also, for more agronomic knowledge and resources, be sure to check us out on Twitter, or X is now we call it, at Alberta Grains, and check out my X account as well, at Boychin Jeremy, where I share my personal insights as well. Uh, but wait, there's more. Our website, Alberta Grains, is a plethora of information. Um, be sure to check it out, not just for agronomic information, but everything else the commission is doing on the farmer's behalf. You can go there, sign up for the Growing Point newsletter, where our agronomic team provides timely, relevant information straight to your inbox to help you make decisions on the farm. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode.